also the man wearing shoes and jeans, who Steve referred to earlier um, in this bitingly cold Bundaberg weather. Uh, right, we're going to be getting straight into our passage together this morning. So we are in John chapter 14. If you have your Bible with you, uh, please open up into uh, John 14 and we will be getting into the Word there. Now, last week, we saw the disciples very troubled. Jesus had told them that, that, that he was leaving and that they could not come with him. So they had left, if you remember, their homes, their families, their jobs, had thrown everything in with Jesus. Their entire future, as they could conceive of their future, it was all about Jesus. And then Jesus said, by the way, I'm going and you can't come. They are clearly at this point deeply, deeply troubled. So Jesus began to comfort them. And he did so by explaining that he was going to be with them by sending the Holy Spirit uh, and by other ways that Jesus was going to support them. He told them that he was God, meaning that he can keep his promises, that he through the cross would prepare a place for them in eternity, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. And then he took them from beyond an inward focus on their struggles to an outward focus and call to mission, to being able to share the good news. He then told them that greater works they would do than Jesus himself had done. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but we, when we share the good news, get to see people from spiritual death come to spiritual life, right? And that's the mission that he has given us. This is the great work that he has given us. Listen to this passage from 2 Corinthians. This should get a hallelujah shouted out, or at least a little quiet yes. You know, um, there's an ad for some sort of tax agency with an accountant who's just like, yes, when she settles books. Has anyone seen that ad? Anyway, it makes me think of church all the time. Yes. All right. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Amen? The old has passed away, and see, the new has come, spiritually born again. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Church, come on, right? This is everything that Jesus has been talking about in John. Jesus came to fulfill the requirements of the law, to live the perfect life which we can't. He bore the wrath of the Father against sin. And then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. 
And that was really the earthly ministry and role of Jesus, to pay the penalty of the Father's wrath. Then comes the Holy Spirit, and He comes as the messenger of salvation who indwells us. That's the flow of what Jesus is talking about. He says, I am going so you can do greater works. And what are the greater works? The Holy Spirit indwells the the Christian as the messenger of reconciliation. In other words, we get to see millions upon millions of Lazaruses raised from the dead, don't we? Don't we? That's what Jesus is talking about. Look, I don't want to brag, but I'm going to. I once got to share the gospel with an old Scotsman in his 80s who then put his faith in Jesus and was brought to spiritual life before physically dying a short time later. Jesus, he brought someone to death uh, to life after four days. Me, 80 years. Come on, right? Bring it on. Greater works. Now, I do need to acknowledge that Jesus as well played a little part in that, that, you know, he chose him and me before the foundation of the world. He paid the penalty of his sin and mine. Uh, in Ephesians, it says, he gave him the faith to believe and me. Uh, yeah, like, so Jesus kind of did it all, right? But nonetheless, uh, I was able to share the message that it's about Jesus and a man who'd been dead for 80 years came to life. Church, that's what we're called to. That's, that's the ministry that Christ has given us. That's always slightly amusing to me when I see on Facebook or somewhere this like really grainy image from somewhere in Africa with uh, someone supposedly being raised from the dead. Uh, and, and you get this grainy footage and there's lots of people and you see someone com- sort of coming out of a coffin and the crowd going wild. And, and I see these things shared on social media like, This is the most exciting, incredible miracle, uh, the most amazing thing. Church, come on. Every time someone is saved, every time someone puts their belief in Jesus, that is so much more of a miracle. That's eternal life. That's what we should be sharing on social media. Our friend here just gave their life to Jesus. Let's tell the world that they now have life in his name forevermore. Amen? That's what should excite us. That's the ministry that we've been given. Like I said, miracles can happen. God can do what he likes. But the true great miracle is Jesus paid the penalty of our sin. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we can have life in his name. That is the ultimate miracle. So Jesus has said that we will do greater miracles and then what we ask in his name, he will do. And and of course, that's in accordance with his and the Father's will. And then specifically in the passage, I think it's also to do with that mission of the gospel, right? As we pray and we seek to proclaim the message and we, we pray and ask for opportunities like the Apostle Paul did, as we do those things, then it's in accordance with the message and role that we've been given and Jesus grants our message. And our passage will then continue on. So that's where we're up to John 15 and we, uh, John 14. We're just going to read 15 to 17 this morning. John 14, 15 to 17. If you love me, you will keep my commands. 
And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Here is a truth, a biblical truth, a truth that is from God and is fundamentally, deeply, ultimately, um, completely true and one that our society now really, really wants to fight against. And that truth is that love leads to obedience. Right? So this is what Jesus tells us in this passage. It's interesting because if you listen to how love is portrayed nowadays, love is all about self-fulfillment. What do I get out of it? But love, according to this passage, equals obedience. Now, some of us might sit here and say, of course, Sam. When Jesus says that we should obey him because we love him, I love Jesus. Whatever Jesus tells me, I'm happy to do. Really? Isn't the whole of Scripture the Word of God? That means everything it says is the command of Christ. So when the Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, you find that really easy to obey and show that you love Jesus? Do you know, we used to have in wedding vows, the wife used to say, I will love and obey my husband in response to Ephesians, but not anymore. That's nowhere near politically correct enough anymore. By the way, men are ordered to die for their wives. Well, what about when Jesus says in Hebrews 13, 17, to obey your leaders in the church and to submit to them? Right? Command of Christ, obey your leaders and submit to them. Because no one here has ever refused to submit to leaders in the church, have they? Because to do so is to disobey Christ. I know, I know we always have great reasons to disobey our leadership, very similar to the reasons teenagers give to disobey their parents, right? It's the same kind of mentality, uh, I just don't want to do it, basically. Um, see, when you actually boil it down, obeying the commands of Scripture is difficult, it's hard. We find it a struggle. So what is this passage telling us, though? It's actually a beautiful truth that it's giving us. It's actually not as heavy as what I've just said. Because what Christ says is, if you love me, you will obey my commands. What's the answer to our rebellious heart? What's the answer to the fact that we don't want to submit? What's the answer to the fact when we don't want to obey? Is to come back to the love of of Christ. It's our love of Christ that results in obedience. Now, of course, obedience takes discipline and accountability as well, etc. But at the core is love. Love for Christ results in a willingness to be obedient to His Word. If we aren't obedient in our lives, it's because our love for Christ has gotten out of by the way, love itself could be the reason. Love for the world, for family, for career, 
whatever it is, love for anything else that comes before Christ will put your love for Christ out of whack and you won't be able to follow his commands. Right? Love for Jesus comes first and love for Jesus results in obedience to his word. Love for Jesus results in changed behavior. It's an important truth that we need to get a hold of. So Jesus then moves on. He he sets that platform and then he says he will send us the counselor, the spirit of truth, the one who reveals to us the truth of God's word and he will indwell us. Our passage says the world won't know him or they won't understand the truth of God's world, but once we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are transformed. And if you're in a home group, you would have seen that in the study through the week that we just did. But the best example of this is Peter before Pentecost denying Christ three times, hidden away in a room, desperately fearful for his life. And then Peter, after Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up in front of the people who have just bathed for the blood of Christ, stands up and boldly preaches to them and says, you just crucified the Messiah. Right? What's the difference in Peter? He's born again of the Spirit who brings us the truth and empowers us for the task of sharing the good news. That's what happens in Peter's life. And guess what? We're living after the time of Pentecost. Jesus has sent the Spirit. He indwells the believer. We're living in the time of Acts 2, Peter. Right? That's who we're called to be. Now, all of this should have been having a positive impact on the troubled feelings of the disciples, and hopefully for us. But Jesus now takes it a step further again. So we're just going to read the next bit of our passage. This is John 14, 18 to 21. John 14, 18 to 21. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day you will know that I am in the Father, you are in me and I am in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will also love him and will reveal myself to him. Church, as Christians, we are not and cannot ever be alone. We are not orphans what Jesus says in his text. He says, I will leave for a little bit, but you'll see me in a little while, although the world won't. And in context, I think he's talking about his resurrection appearance. Jesus leaves for a little while, but then he appears and he reveals himself to them as being resurrected before he departs for good. Now, this is incredible that we focus in on what this actually means. Why does Jesus need to appear to them as resurrected before he departs? The resurrection of Jesus is our proof that we too shall rise to new life. If Jesus was not resurrected, then our hope is in vain. 
our hope is in vain. But no, he appeared to more than 500 eyewitnesses to prove that sin and death was defeated. To prove, church, that if you put your faith in Jesus and you follow after him into the harshest and toughest of circumstances, and if you die a martyr in the footsteps of your Savior, you too will rise to new life. And that should stir your soul. Just pause and think about this for a second. If it's true that Jesus has paid the penalty of our sin, has conquered sin and death, and that because you put your faith in him, you have eternal life, doesn't that completely change the way you live? It takes away the fear of the sting of death. The proof of the death and resurrection of Jesus has inspired men and women for the last 2,000 years to lay down their lives for Christ, to risk themselves in the most incredibly tough circumstances in order to preach the gospel because they are certain that life will follow death told you this before, but there were periods of time in history when missionaries packed their belongings in coffins because they believed that we should be buried in coffins back then. And so they, in England, they packed their belongings in a coffin. They spent three months on a sailing ship to get to India, and their life expectation was less than two years after landing due to dying from rare illnesses and fevers, which they weren't ready for. So they packed their things in a coffin to march out and preach the gospel, knowing they would never come back to that earthly home. They went in their droves. Do you know Australia was largely responsible? I like this one because it's our history. We were largely responsible for taking the gospel to the Solomon Islands. So the, the, the great missionary movement of Australia was very much targeted to the Solomon Islands. And if you ever want to read the history, it's incredible. It's called Fire in the Islands. It tells you the history of the mission movement to the Solomon Islands. But here's the thing. They only ever wanted to send a small missionary team over there because they didn't want to just like ram over the culture. They wanted missionaries to go in and learn the culture and share the gospel. And so they only sent a small amount at a time. And again, when you're reading this history, people were dying regularly. They died either of illness, jungle fever, etc. But at the time, the Solomons was still cannibalistic and people were getting eaten. And here is what would happen. Somebody would get eaten. They would send a letter home on the next ship which said, Joe Bloggs got eaten, send the next missionary. And the next guy jumped on the boat and went. Do you just want to think about that for a second? What kind of weak Christianity do we live? Seriously, that's how it worked. Oh, look, two people died this time. Jungle fever got them both dead. Send two more because we're just working on this set number. Boom, the next two guys jumped on the boat. Over they went. Why? Because they knew the certainty of the resurrection of Christ. And they went over there knowing that if they died, they would be with Christ forever. 
But this is the difference it's meant to make, knowing that Jesus is the firstborn of many children of God, proving that he conquered sin and death. I think we've lost so much of that mentality in the church today. We're so concerned about ourselves, our needs, and less worried about following and honouring Christ. Now think about music. Now we've got the outright heretical songs like Above All Powers, Above All Thrones, Thought of Me Above All. Anyway, that kind of heretical rubbish that makes me the centre of everything God ever did, uh, which is just not true. But if you notice, like, nearly all of the songs we sing are gospel true songs, and they are, and they're fantastic songs, and I don't want to stop singing them, but in a way, they're a cross-centered self-centeredness. I don't know how else to explain it, but every single song we often sing is gospel, but it's all about me, what Jesus did for me, how this applies to me, the fact that I am now free. It's just all literally about me, through the fact that Jesus died and paid the penalty of my sin, but it's still ultimately all about me. What I find interesting about that is that's changed. The great missionary movement of the 18th and 19th centuries was when the church of the West sent out thousands upon thousands upon thousands of missionaries all around the world. Their mentality was, we are called to a mission. We are called to a purpose. And that is how the Christian is meant to live their life. And it's reflected in their music. I want you to listen to this. This is some of the verses to Onward Christian Soldier, written in a period of time where the belief was, we are not Christians for us, we are Christians for the call of Christ. Listen to the difference. We don't write stuff like this. Onward Christian Soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before, Christ the royal master leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banners go. Like a mighty army moves the church of God, brothers we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body we, one in faith and spirit, one eternally. Crowns and thrones may perish, Kingdoms rise and wane, but the church of Jesus constant will remain. Gates of hell can never against the church prevail. We have Christ's own promise, which can never fail. Did you get the difference in the feel? This is a song saying, church, we are called to hardship. We're called to suffer like our master, but he's promised that no gate, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. We're called to a mission and a purpose, so onward march. Forget the pain, forget the hardship, forget the struggle. Onward march. Where's that gone? Where's the heart of enduring hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ? Now, I really want everyone to think about this bit for a moment. So everyone, I don't know, pluck out an eyebrow hair or something. Um, whatever it takes to wake you up, right? Um, turn to the person next to you and slap them. No, don't, don't do that. Uh, all right, um, but everyone, listen, everyone lean forward quickly. 
That makes me feel like you're listening. All right? So, good. I want you to think about this. Who here has played sport in their life? Any kind of sport? Yep, nearly everyone, right? That's, that's good. I want you to think about this. Most of my life I've played rugby league, and rugby league is basically a sport of standing up, smashing into each other, running back 10 metres, smashing into each other. So I've broken bones, I've got more bruises, more cuts, destroyed shoulders, you know, the, the life of a not very good rugby league player, you just end up really sore without ever going anywhere, right? That's, that's the journey of rugby league. And then all of you netball girls out there who willingly, literally just sat there and destroyed your knees and ankles, um, right? That, that's just part of the game, that's what you do. Um, so, you know, you're 40 years old, you can't walk, but you're like netball. Um, this, this is... This is what we do. Um, for me, spearfishing. The other day, I decided to have beautiful Queensland water. I was swimming without a wetsuit. Rubbed my legs along some coral when I swam to look under a ledge. Last night, no, the night before, I couldn't sleep because, you know, coral cuts. Oh, man, it was throbbing all down my leg. Every time I rolled over, I was like, ah. Why do I bring this up? Why do we keep playing netball? Why do we keep playing rugby league? Why do we keep doing whatever sport it is you do? I've been uh, to do Drew's bees with him wherever Drew is, and I've watched Drew getting stung by those bees. Why does he keep going back, right? If we have a goal, really want you to think about this. You tell me later if I'm wrong, please. If we have a goal, we can endure pain. If the goal is to win a game, You can go through all kinds of pain and stay on the field or stay on the court because you are desperate to win. If you've been stung by nine bees, but you are desperate to get that honey, you you keep going. If you have a goal, you stay in the game. Now I want you to take whatever sport or activity you were thinking of, and now I just want you to picture you on the average Sunday afternoon, sitting on the lounge, really comfortable. And then what I want you to think about is someone coming into that room and say, okay, every Sunday from here on in, I'm just going to systematically, while you're sitting there in the lounge, apply those same amounts of pain to you. So for you netballers, I'm just going to sit there and kind of wrench your knee uh, every Sunday afternoon while you're relaxing on the lounge. You rugby league guys, I'll just put phone books on you and hit you with a hammer. Um, Like, like whatever it is, I'm just going to start doing those things to you while you relax on the lounge. How would you feel about that, genuinely? Anyone? I'm going with horrified. Like, wouldn't you legitimately call that torture? Like, actually, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you expect that person to be arrested? Is that fair? Yeah? Just making sure I'm not talking to myself. Right? When you expect that person to be arrested, wouldn't the pain seem almost unbearable? True? But throw a ball in your hands, I'm on. Right? So, what's the difference? The difference is one of them you have a goal you're trying to achieve and you take the punishment that comes with it. The other your goal is to live in comfort and peace and any intrusion on that seems completely wrong. Is that true? Your goal changes your attitude to pain and suffering. 
how do you conceive of your Christian walk? Your goal is not to get to heaven looking immaculate because you stayed on the bench. Your goal is to get to heaven covered in bruises, cuts, broken bones, destroyed ligaments, limping, smiling through gaps in your teeth because you ran in such a way as to win the prize. You fought the good fight and finished the race. Set your goal and endure as a soldier of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us in this passage. It's where we've got our thinking so wrong, we kind of keep bringing it back to us instead of coming back to the fact that we are under commands and we're called to play and we're called to play hard to go into all the world teaching, making disciples, baptizing them, that we have a mission and a ministry to fulfill and we should expect that there's going to be some broken bones on along the way, but we put up with it, we get back in the game because we have a goal to bring the glory of Jesus through the proclamation of his word. And if you can make that your thinking, if you can shift from being so much about you to being more about Jesus and what he's called you to, then you will endure the pain and you'll endure the hardships and you'll finish the race. This is what the Bible is telling Flowing out on from that, Jesus then again, he again reiterates that the one who keeps his commands is the one who loves him. We are driven by love and lordship. Christ has both our hearts and our allegiance. He is our friend and our master. This passage is resounding with encouragement. But it's not just the encouragement of, you will be okay, let me give you a warm hug but it's also the encouragement of a kick up the backside that says get on with the mission and you will find that the problems are smaller when you set your mind on the goal and endure the hardship. We see all this in the final part of our passage. This is John 14, 22 to 24. Judas, not Iscariot. By the way, if your name was Judas, you would always want them to put in brackets, not Iscariot, wouldn't you? The rest of your life, Judas, if I was bringing you up to order a pizza, it's Judas, not Iscariot, um, right? That's just how it is. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but it's from the Father who sent me. And just quickly, why does um, Judas ask, now by the way, Brent and Jan are storming off because they're upset at what I've said. It's not true, they actually said to me last week, we have to leave early, Sam, please know that we're not storming off, but now I just had to highlight them. All right, so don't ever tell me, it's probably the safer bet. All right, um, so why does Judas ask, 
how will you reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Or why does he ask? Well, remember, they believed that the Messiah would come as a national king, as a ruler like David who would conquer Israel's enemies and sit on the throne. Doesn't the question make more sense now? Jesus, how are you going to come back and we're going to see you but no one else is? Because that's going to be really hard, isn't it? You're going to somehow conquer all of Israel's enemies. You're going to defeat Rome, sit on the throne that Caesar used to have, but only we're going to see you do this? How does that work? So that's, that's the essence of the question. Of course, Jesus' response is, you've got it wrong. God will indwell the believer. They will know the revelation of God by his indwelling. Now, Jesus here says that the Father and Son will dwell in the believer. Now, this can either mean that the Father and Son dwells in the believer through the Holy Spirit, or it could be in reference to the triune God. Either way, God is indwelling the believer. He is making his home within the believer. You are indwelt by God, the maker of all things, the one who holds all things together. Is it any wonder that we used to sing Onward Christian Soldier and march out with the gospel? That's what Jesus says. God is in you. He indwells you. He empowers you. Get on with the mission. I've heard it said that the reason we have a kangaroo and an emu on the Australian coat of arms is that neither animal can walk backwards. The idea is that as Australians, we always march forwards, right? That our military will never retreat. That's the idea. Neither animal can move backwards. Maybe that should be our church logo, right? Because we don't retreat. Why don't we retreat? Because Jesus has won the cost of our salvation. He indwells us with his spirit and power, and we have the good news, which is the power of God for salvation. Why would we take a backward step? Why would we take a backward step? That's the reality of who we are. We have nothing to fear. We have a ministry of seeing the dead come to life. But church, that won't happen out of sheer duty and obedience, and it certainly won't happen just because a preacher tells you to on a Sunday. So Jesus repeats it right here again, just to close. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my commands. Right? It's love for Christ. Love for Christ that ultimately is the driver fulfilling his mission. Our wedding vow to Christ is to love and obey to boldly proclaim his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, with love in our hearts, the promise of life, we march to win the prize. That is the encouragement Jesus is giving us. With eyes on the prize, we can endure the hardships for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I simply ask you, take these words and you seat them in our hearts. Lord, we live in an age of 
constantly bringing everything about ourselves. Lord, we see both things in this, this passage we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. We see a comfort to the hearts of those who believe in you, which we need, the promise of the indwelling presence of God, the promise of life, the promise of sins forgiven. We see that personal comfort. But Lord, your encouragement to the troubled heart goes beyond personal comfort to the call to mission. Lord, as we set our eyes on the goal, as we, we set our eyes on to running the race like we're trying to win, Lord, the hardships and the, the sufferings become obstacles that we jump over to win the prize. So may we reset ourselves and our goals and our future on the call and commands of Christ. Our lives would be spent in seeking to achieve your glory through the proclamation of your gospel. Lord, I pray this in and through your name. Amen.